0: Welcome to The Queer SLP,
1: a podcast for the LGBTQ plus professional.
0: Join two chatty speech language pathologists as we deep dive into queer culture, evidence-based research, and work-related issues.
1: The Queer SLP's mission is to establish a sense of community, discuss informative content, and provide a space for other proud professionals to share their stories.
0: All right, so we are here at the Queer SLP. My name is Hector, and I have
1: pronouns that are he, him, God! Yay! Um, (laughs) And I'm Natalie, my pronouns are she, her. And today we have a new guest. His name is Jim Cartwright. Jim, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us your pronouns? Hi,
2: I'm Jim Cartwright, and my pronouns are he, him. Welcome. Thanks. Yeah,
0: so today we are here to share and learn about Jim's story and get to know him more on his Proud Professional episode. As with all episodes, we like to start out from the beginning. So let's go
2: back to baby Jim and Jim will let you take it away. So, you know, I would think we're evoking that this is kind of the multi-generational <laughs> edition of your podcast.
1: <laughs> it
2: is. <laughs> so, like, I think I'm the oldest person you've ever had here at the age of 59. It's true. And I'm a person very interested in history. So let's just start evoking that the ancestors and people of three generations. Okay. <laughs> so I was born in 1962, which puts me at the tail end of the baby boomers. officially. I was mentally ill until I was 11 and then I wasn't because until 1973 to be gay was considered a mental illness in the United States. Hmm. So
1: which is just such recent history it, that just blows my mind. Right.
2: Very recent history. And my own life, you know, not that I knew that as a little kid, but that's how it was. So, you know, given that that's the time I was born into, not surprisingly, I was also born into a family in the Midwest where my parents were homophobic. They loved me a lot. It wasn't that I was rejected by them. They loved me a lot, but they weren't able to accept that I was gay. And of course, as a kid, it hurts that your parents can't accept you. But I, if I try to look at that through their lens, I know that the what they thought was that something was morally wrong with me and they were afraid that it was their fault. So I'm not going to villainize my parents. I'm just going to put this in the context of history. I would say, but it's going to look at a victim villain kind of mentality, I would say my parents and I were victimized by a belief that turned out to be a lie, you know, and that was the belief in the culture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was in the closet for a long, long time. I mean, I had a lot of internalized homophobia. I saw myself as bisexual once I got to be a late teenager and in my 20s. I didn't come out to my parents until I was in my 30s. And I knew they weren't going to like it. And they didn't. It's a complicated story. I first came out to my sisters, right? And, and they're not homophobic. They were fine with it. But two out of the three felt that our parents probably wouldn't be able to handle it. And the third one thought you should tell them if you need to, but you should do it in letters. And I did it that way. And I do think that was the best way for them. You know, you have that fear or I did. I don't know if you two did, but that. Ooh, oh, yeah. You yeah. Um, you know, that I think <laughs> for sure. you listened to <laughs> already, maybe you're going to be rejected by your parents and disowned and all that stuff. And that never happened. But they did. You know, they were afraid that God was going to be unhappy with them. And they refused to talk about it for over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until they were in their 80s that they kind of softened. And I went there with my husband and stayed with my sister and visited them
1: just going along the lines again with the history that we're keeping in mind you know this was also a time when parents were also blamed for their children being autistic and you know anything that was you know quote wrong with your child came down on the parents that right. they must have done something wrong to make their children quote wrong and so it doesn't surprise me that your parents would feel like, oh, well, this is something that we've done wrong, considering that at the time also, you know, that being gay was considered a mental illness. And right. I feel like I can't help but have compassion for your parents. I mean, it's just, that's a struggle. Mm-hmm. And obviously they loved you. They did. Yeah.
2: We
0: just jumped right into that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. There's space to hold for them, which is, you know, I'm I'm so glad that you're in a space, Jim, that you can do that. You know, that says a lot about your character. But Let's kind of jump into a little bit about Jim, the SLP. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to know about that. So how did you come around? One, you know, what was your uh, training, but also mm-hmm. to like, how did you even <laughs>
2: decide to be an SLP? Sure. I mean, uh, and I came into that a little bit late, too. I became an SLP in my 30s. It's kind of like, because I'm the oldest one in this podcast, I mean, I kind of like I'm the grandpa of the podcast, but I identify more (laughs) as a unicorn. I feel more like a unicorn that has to be in the human world somehow. So I really was pushing 30 before I thought in terms of things like financial stability, I just wanted to be a poet and an artist. So, I mean, I got an MA at Michigan State University in poetry, and then I got an MFA from the University of Oregon in poetry. And then actually for a little while, I lived with my... My parents in Washington, D.C., which my friends were shocked that I could do that for eight months, but I did and it was fine. We had a good connection. And then I moved to Spain and I had that expatriate fantasy that I would be an American who would live in Europe forever. And that lasted two and a half years. And, (laughs) um, you know, then I was moving to San Francisco. And even then, I thought I would get a master's in interdisciplinary art. It was really only my friends that were like, but you don't have any career and you don't have any money and you're almost thirty. So maybe you should think about doing something stable. And I kind of realized at that point in my life, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So I didn't even know what this career was when I did it. I the first day I walked in on I mean, I got accepted, you know, into the program. I mean I kind of researched a little bit about what the career was and that jobs existed and that there was a program in the city I lived in. I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know what it was. And if my first impulse was I'm going to drop out because I went to like an anatomy class and I was like, this is way too hard for me. I don't understand <laughs> it. I feel you there.
1: there. there is oh yeah. I you can't do it. <laughs> it.
2: <laughs> But you know, then I got into it. My dream which also didn't turn out to be how my life unfolded is I, my only ambition was to be a public school therapist. I loved the public schools. I wanted to provide services for free and work in the public schools for my whole life. And I made it through 10 years of that. <laughs> and I burned out on that. And now I work in a free clinic in San Francisco. It's like a free clinic to the community. so people don't pay to come. And I've been there for 15 years. The last three years, I've been there by myself. So that's kind of the story. A lot of my, I mean, I guess the other part of my background that gets blended in with that is a passion for creative writing. So I'm all about blending creative writing with speech and language therapy. And I also teach creative writing classes to tweens at that center, tweens specializing in tweens with learning differences, tweens who go to, to speech and language therapy. Another passion is social justice. It's probably fine to, to mention my Facebook group, I assume. Yep, that would
1: be great. Please do.
2: All right. So I, I started this Facebook group during COVID just as an impulse that's called Speech Paths for Compassion and Social Justice. And all I did was like invite 20 people that I knew and half of them aren't in it because they don't get on Facebook. But it's got like somewhere between 700 and 800 people in it now. And it, i it. Met wow through it. <laughs> you know, I've met a lot of people through it. And I put posted some of your episodes up on it. I mean, it's it's not a queer site. It's a kind of intersectional site. Mm-hmm. All things social justice blend together. So there's. But, yeah, I mean, I think it needs to
1: be that way.
2: You know,
1: it, I think that siloing ourselves, you know, queer issues, race issues, disability issues, that just doesn't work well. We're never going to make the progress we want to make. And that's what I love about your Facebook page is that it, it doesn't silo any issue. It's any any issue that, that's relevant comes into the discussion. And I think that that's perfect.
2: Cool. Yeah, it's all
0: interwoven. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask for a second again. So mm-hmm. you said you like, decided to jump in you got in um Mm -hmm. i think anybody who's you know entering the field now or has in the last like even when i was entering in it was cutthroat like to get in like it was you know you were stalking online on grad cafe to see to count how many acceptance letters were sent out (laughs) and Mm -hmm. how many were actually you know taken so at that time like was it just a pretty easy, easy you know, situation for you to, to just kind of jump right in?
2: Or like, what was that like for you? For me, it was. I mean, what I've heard is that it was not that cutthroat at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, always, I don't
1: even think it was that cutthroat when I applied. Yeah, you know, I think it's in the early wrong. 2000s. Yeah.
2: I will say, since we already got onto intersectionality, I mean, I'll never know. But I'm curious, did the fact that I'm a cis white male, Help me get into graduate school when it's full of women and maybe they wanted more men. I don't know. I mean, I can't possibly know that, but you're always... I think part of the whole podcast is I got to, okay. being gay has been challenging sometimes, but being a cis white male has given me privileges in my life, many of which I probably am completely unaware of. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And so I don't know that that helped me get into graduate school, but it might have. I don't know. I don't know. But no, it wasn't that cutthroat. It wasn't that hard. Hmm. And were
1: there many men in your program?
2: No, 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 no. Very few. What about professors? Yes, there were male professors. I mean, this is always that whole thing about men as a minority is kind of a surreal concept in our field. I Mm -hmm. mean, on some levels, yeah, because there are not very many of them. But one thing, there's this cool thing going on in California with Kasha right now where they have these things called Kasha convoses where people come in and talk. It's kind of another forefront of social justice in our field. And I remember... Betty Yu came from San Francisco State and she was talking about, you know, men as a minority is not an equity issue because there's no barriers to men getting in. Mm -hmm. And I think she has a point. And I do think there were way more male professors, given the percentage of males in the field, than women. So, you know, and of course, you know, two thirds of the men who were there were gay Surprise, surprise. So, um, yeah, there were male professors, there were a few few gay guys, and mainly women. Not so many lesbians either, really. Tons of straight women. What I, I think, by definition, men are minority. Are they
0: marginalized, though? That is where there's a difference. You know, statistically, there can be less than, you know, and you're a minority because there's less of you, and that's where it is. But as far as being marginalized... I would say that's where the difference. (laughs) um,
1: Yeah, (laughs) I think it's a really important distinction to make the difference between minority and marginalized, especially
0: in our field. Yeah. Like I I know I'm one of the few, but I don't think I've ever been like penalized by that. It's been like, oh, great. We're so glad you're here. Um, As far as like within our field, whether that's my individual experience with other clients and their families. No, I can't speak for that. But as far as the way that our field looks at us, yeah, I would never say we're a minority in the negative sense that is marginalized. Ooh, okay. So we...
1: So (laughs) I, I have a question. I'm still wrapping my head around. Did you just sort of pick speech pathology out of a hat it just happened to be some program that that was available at the time is
2: that that i i mean i lived in san francisco for one year first and i did do some like research about jobs and there was this thing called spot therapies speech PTOT therapy and like, there were jobs in these fields but you know if there wouldn't have been a speech program in San Francisco I wouldn't have applied for it like I was living in San Francisco and my life was going to have to work in that city that was how I thought it was very random I really didn't understand what it was and I'd never been on campus before my first day of class I didn't know what I was doing but I knew I was languagey you know what I mean because I all the poetry and the English literature and it's like okay this is a languagey thing it's not mathy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.
1: so your love of language led you to it yeah um, Mm-hmm. I can relate to that because my love of music led me to speech pathology, my love of singing. So
2: I can relate. Well, tell to me that. more about that. I mean, I also love music and I write songs and put out CDs and all that stuff. So oh. Um, oh. you're not a voice therapist.
1: No. Well, no. That was my original intention, though. I, I wanted to be an opera singer. Mm-hmm. And my parents talked me out of it. Mm-hmm. I've mixed feelings about that. But yeah, my intention was to become a voice therapist. But then when I started getting into my training, I realized that I really loved working with children. And so I changed my orientation towards working with kids and no regrets there. I love working with kids. Cool.
2: Yeah. Did you have like a roundabout way? I mean, did you have other visions when you started? Yeah,
0: (laughs) I for sure did. I changed my major in undergrad at least five times. I actually graduated with a deaf education bachelors. And interestingly enough, it was all under the realm of communication disorders. And so I knew about speech through that experience. And then just kind of thinking about job security and because uh, mind you, this was 2008. So we all know what happened from that period of time in our lives. The recession was there. And so job security was just, I didn't, I didn't want to, as much as I love working with a deaf population, like that is a very specific you know like Mm -hmm. population to work with and so um, i wanted more job security and so i decided to go into speech and so yeah it it was never like i'm going to do this from the get-go i think many people kind of fall into it um and i would say we're all similar in that um I'm curious because we, you know, you said you started in, in your 30s, you know, mm-hmm. as an SLP. So did we just kind of jump over your 20s or was that when you were learning, you <laughs> That's know, like, when you
1: were tripsing around Europe?
0: <laughs> right. Like in my head, there is this wonderful fantasy, but I would like to know about like, you know, you got the the MA, the MFA, you know, you were writing, you were doing all of these things. Like what was going on in your 20s? And then remind us, you know, like, of, you know, what time... Decade-wise, when was that?
2: Sure. So, I mean, what you well? Uh, so, my twenties means I graduated from high school in 1980. So, the 80s basically um, were my twenties. I mean, all of that stuff is the stuff that you said was going on. Yes, I was doing all those things. I mean, I know that we we've talked a little bit about okay. Actually, why don't I I will tell you my life, but why don't we all say what generations we belong to? So I was born in 1952, and that puts me on the tail end of the baby boomers. (laughs)
1: Uh, I was born in 1979, which makes me the tail end of Gen X.
0: And I was born (laughs) in 1987. So Gen Z? No, millennial?
1: Millennial? Uh, I think you're millennial, yeah. <laughs> there's, I think there's, so. Uh,
0: I mean, that weird frame of, like, possibly what's called Gen Y, maybe, but I believe I'm a millennial. I don't really know, but I believe millennial is what most people would call me. What is Gen Z, by the way? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, think, I think that's, like, people born in, like, the early 2000s, maybe. Oh, my gosh,
0: that's definitely
2: not me.
1: But more recently. Yeah,
2: okay, no. So, I'm a millennial. We we could, someone could Google it, but I think you're right. You know, so part of my thing uh, before I get into my own life is history, queer story. So I like to, since we got three generations here, let's invoke the ancestors too. I think it's important to remember the queer ancestors who came before us and who lived through harder times and who paved the way for us. So Mm -hmm. they may not be physically living with us in this podcast, but they're here. And I have a particular, I don't know, obsession with it, but I i, I wrote a to-be-published <laughs> book that's a, a YA biography and verse about the life of Harry Hay, and he was an early gay activist in the late 40s is when it started, I mean, wow. throughout his life, but especially late 40s and 50s, and I knew him when he was in his 90s. So I've also studied a lot of gay history, and I feel like, yeah, history is here in the room with us, yeah. too well, in fact, and then I'll get back into my life. But sorry, this just popped into my head because I just got it this week. There's a great new book out <laughs> <laughs> that's called uh, it's by Lee Wind and it's called No Way They Were Gay. Question mark. It's for Ooh. middle grade, young adult. And it is, you know, it's queer history the way we were not taught it in school. And it, yeah. it isn't divided into these people were gay and these people were lesbian because the, the those categories didn't exist. It's just like men who loved men, women who loved women, people outside the gender boundaries. But it's people like Abraham Lincoln and Mahatma Gandhi. I mean, I was certainly not taught as a child that Abraham no. Lincoln had a love letter correspondence with another man and lived with him for years. And you know, what if history had been taught to us that way?
1: I have a recommendation for history too because um, it, I knew that it. I knew that we were going to have this sort of intention with these. So I watched a documentary called Before
2: Stonewall. Oh, I love that.
1: It was so good. You know, it talks about the you know, queer history before like in the early twentieth century and I learned about Harry Hay during McCarthyism and I, I had no idea that like McCarthyism wasn't just about the Cold War. Like, you know, gay people were dragged through the mud during that time. So, you know, mm-hmm. that that time period I had no idea so I need to check that book out too I think I'm catching the history bug from you
2: all right <laughs> I, mean, I was gonna make you to talk about the red scare is the communist part and the lavender scare is the queer part but yeah I mean well also Harry Hay and most of the people who started the gay rights movement were communists and so people they have certainly erased the communist roots of the gay rights movement is not is another thing you're not taught in school. So it's a complex history. But um, because we were talking before and I remember you being curious about, oh, you were alive before AIDS (laughs) and oh, you were alive at the height of AIDS. So, yeah, we we can talk about that because that's going to intersect with all that my 20s. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But this is the part where we kind of give the content warning, I think, to particular listeners. Because we're going to get into some difficult material that involves abuse that people might not be in the right space to listen to. Put it that way, just so that they know ahead of time. At the same time, no one on this podcast is in crisis right now. I mean, we're you know, this is talking about the distant past. This isn't like you're going to hear somebody in crisis. But if we're going to get into history, that's going to be part of it. So we've kind of touched upon that we were considered mentally ill until 73. So I was already alive. The thing is, I think there's this vision for a lot of gay men that like, oh, you were alive in the golden age before AIDS hit or something. And I suppose for some people, that was a party days party story. You know, that really wasn't how my life unfolded. I, I What I would say is I was kind of pre-traumatized before AIDS hit. What I mean, but well, there was more than one experience. But what I really mean by that is that when I was a teenager, I was raped, but I didn't know what rape was so that it sounds naive from where I'm at now. But I was, you know, a teenager in the Midwest in the 1970s. And I guess the only vision I had of rape at that point of my life was like a bad guy waiting behind a bush to grab a woman kind of thing. I didn't know that men raped other men and I didn't know that that men raped teenage boys. So I didn't know what was happening to me. I didn't know what had happened. You know what I mean? I didn't know about like fight, flight, freeze response. So what happened is I froze, you know, I froze and I kind of felt like I left my body. I was disassociated. And then when it was over, I thought it was my fault. So I blamed myself because I didn't fight. I didn't try to get out of it. And I still didn't have a concept for what had happened, but I was—I had a lot of internalized homophobia at that point in my life, in my teens, and I wasn't out to myself, so I was kind of trying to force myself inside my mind to be different than I was. I think I knew that I was attracted to the stranger who hurt me. So it was confusing for me. And it wasn't like I thought I could talk to somebody about it or work through it or process it. That wasn't in my mental, my mindset. All I knew to do at that point in my life was repress, try to repress it and not think about it. But that was mental. At the same time, it actually caused physical harm. So I had health problems for about four years after that, but I still didn't tell people about it. It was really weird. About three years after it, when I was 19, I was in the hospital in a heart ward. I had an irregular heartbeat. And that's when I remembered it all, like all this stuff that I had repressed came back up. Mm -hmm. And by then I had enough of a concept that I knew like, oh, that's what that was because it wasn't like I consented to it and said yes. You know what I mean? And so I understood what had happened a couple years earlier while laying in a hospital bed with a heart problem. And my heart healed itself. I've always wondered if there was a connection between that that experience and that heart problem, but I don't really know.
1: I want to thank you. I mean, it's so brave of you to talk about this. And it's something that's difficult for people to talk about. And I think especially in the LGBT community, people don't really want to acknowledge that sexual assault happens. I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but I am a domestic abuse survivor. My abuser was a woman and I think that it's the elephant in the room that the queer community doesn't really want to talk about. I guess my first reaction is thank you for, you know, for speaking your truth because that that's scary. And I totally believe that, you know, that our body and our mind are connected in a way that you could have, you know, had, you know, a heart issue that needed healing. And it sounds like you eventually did, but, you know, you had to go through a journey to get there. Yeah. I don't know, Hector, what do you, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you, Jim, having been sexually assaulted previously as well. I think there is this idea. I can't speak for any other part of the community, but as gay men, there's this toxic masculinity piece that we're not supposed to be assaulted and and that that i i I completely identified with you when it came to that feeling of on some level you were aware that you were you know possibly attracted to your you know attacker and that you know you felt like you at that time had like did i ask for this did i want that and that is such a common i can't you know again i'm only speaking for myself but i can't Believe that that's we're the only ones who think that, yeah, and and that's really hard to come to terms with, especially when your body responds. Like I similarly, I was like, "What is going on here?" You know, like I was aroused, and I did not want that, but it's just what my body was doing, and I felt like my body betrayed me. It's, It's tough. It's definitely. Something a lot of therapy helps with. Um, for sure. but yeah, I think <laughs> yes. I think we all
1: right. <laughs> therapy is, is so helpful.
0: Therapy was that was the catalyst for me that helped me mm-hmm. on my therapeutic journey was going through a, you know something like that. And so, um, again, I think what you're sharing with us again is a, a, a one a big thank you, but two, like it is a story that I think a lot of, will resonate with a lot of people, um, regardless of what generation you were born into.
2: Yeah, I'm struck by that, too, because this isn't just my historical story. All three of us have had similar experiences from three different generations. This is not over, right? This is not something that happened in the past. And this is something I'm concerned about now with queer youth. I mean, this is something that I would like to be more directly involved in preventing you know a a raising awareness and preventing this from happening with queer youth and and if it has already happened being a support community Mm -hmm. agreed so yeah i think
0: it's i think on the so on the on the positive end though if i think about it wasn't the end of our story we can share our stories and be like hey and this is what happened next let's jump into that jim what happened next for
2: you it gets worse before it gets better, but it, well, <laughs> or not. Well, yeah, but it does get better. Okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so now that was a teenage thing. And then, so it's interesting, you mentioned therapy. The other thing I think put therapy in a historical context because we were mentally ill until 73. So I would not say in the early 80s, great therapy was yet available for gay people after I realized what had happened in the past, I did first try to go to therapy at Michigan State. And the guy was really weird, you know, and I I was telling him, I think I'm bisexual. And this rape thing happened. And he kept like, looking away from me and looking at his watch. And at the end, he was just like, well, I don't think I can do help you in any way. But you can come back and see me again, if you really want to. And like I even made an appointment and then I canceled it. But I was just like, oh, well, so much for therapy. And then when I went to the University of Oregon, when I went to poetry school there, I tried therapy again around the same thing. And that guy's deal was basically to try to cure me. And his thing was if I just had sex with a woman, I would be fine. That was his thing. And he would get irritated with me if I would like go to therapy and I hadn't come on to a woman and try to pick somebody up. And, you know, in my, I knew it felt wrong. It felt all wrong inside my heart and my intuition and all that. But I didn't have the self-esteem. The therapist was the authority in my Mm -hmm. mind. Like he knew what was right for me and I must be wrong. In retrospect, I didn't listen to my own intuition. And... Well, I mean, as soon as I actually did have sex with a woman, he's like, "Well, this is your last session, then, because you're fine now." And she turned out to be psychotic. Uh, (laughs) So that kind of led to another (laughs) not pleasant chapter. I mean, sometimes in your life you can date someone for three months and kind of almost forget it ever happened. But this is a relationship I will not forget. It didn't end well, you know, and there were lots of warning signs that things were not good. And all I did was say that I needed a break, but that was enough of a trigger for her. And I mean, honestly, she did try to rape me, too. But in terms of the physiology, that didn't work out, put it that way. But she beat me up and she broke my glasses and ripped up my clothes and did all of that in front of her two-year-old kid. And then she started to stalk me. I wasn't feeling safe to go home. And I remember I was staying at a friend's apartment and taking a shower and she like got into their apartment and found me in the shower. It was kind of wow. like psycho. And, but instead of a she gave me a, like an apology note, but it was like, ah, um. But I would go home and try to get things and want, you know, to pick things up. And one time she was she had gotten in through the window and she was waiting in my bed and was like, our relationship can't end until you sleep with me one more time and all this stuff. And naive. But I tried to see the same therapist because I'm like, this is what happened, you know, and so. He made an appointment with me, but he blew me off. He didn't show up for the appointment. And so a different therapist in the office took me and she stalked me and right into the therapist's office and was refusing to leave me alone. And, you know, I want to marry him. I want to have his baby. He can't leave me and all this stuff. It was not fun. And then I went home one other time and she'd broken in and robbed and vandalized my apartment or my room. And she'd taken like red paint and splashed it all over the wall and all over the bed. And she'd gotten a knife and slashed up my mattress. So when I walked through the door, there was like a bed with a knife sticking out of it. and <sighs> Red paint everywhere. You know, <laughs> like you know. <laughs> oh, well, <I>
1: yeah. <laughs> I've never watched yeah.
2: a fatal attraction, but I've heard there's
1: something. kind of it kind of has that fatal attraction feeling to it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it yeah. yeah, it was not pleasant. And so, you know, I will say at that point, my parents rescued me, you know, I, they got me a plane ticket and I went to see them in Michigan for six weeks. And when I moved back to Eugene, I lived in a different apartment with an unlisted phone number. But that so getting into history, that's when AIDS started. That relationship was the very beginning of, of AIDS. And then I actually had more bad therapy because I went to therapy about that. And the therapist was like, well, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but she's actually told me this whole story herself because she comes oh. to me, too. And she's really sorry about what, what? She did. Like, oh, oh, that oh. just. <laughs> <and she was laughs> with sexuality. And in my in face, face, face right, 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 right now. With me. <laughs> and i I was hanging out naked in the hot tub with my therapist and feeling very awkward. And it was messy, 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 messy for a while. And so, kind of what happened is I'm, so, hold on. I Go think ahead. between the male trauma, the female trauma, and AIDS, which was so dangerous for so many years, I just flipped that light switch off. Right. I just put my sexuality in hibernation for years. And all of this is very heavy. I get it. It's heavy. But if you knew me at that time, I'm fortunate that I wasn't like a depressed person. Like I I was essentially a happy person in spite of this stuff going on. You know, I went to graduate school. I traveled. I had friends. I was pretty upbeat. I mean, there were things, unresolved issues, but I was an upbeat person. And, And I would also say, this is a gift of getting older, is you get to relive your life backwards and you get to look back on the past and see it from a different perspective. So one perspective I have is it's actually possible that the traumas I went through saved my life. Mm. Because like when I left Michigan to go to the West Coast, it was me and a friend and We only we'd never been to the West Coast. We both applied to San Francisco and Eugene and I got in both. She got in Eugene. We went to Eugene. And if I had moved to San Francisco, it would have been like young guy in his 20s when no one knew that this virus was out there. Everyone was getting infected. It didn't exist. I could have died of AIDS years ago. Right. You know, and so maybe that protected me in some strange way. But things got better, you know, once I got into my 30s and it wasn't as safe as it is now, but it was safer. I could explore my sexuality. I mean, now I've been with my husband for 11 years and, you know, yeah, things are OK now. But historically, yeah, that was rough. That was not easy. I'm thinking
0: about you saying that you've been with your husband, your partner for over 11 years now. So that means that you were and you were in California this whole time. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So you were like Prop Eight. Do you remember that and that how big that deal was, um, especially in California? Like I lost friendships to that. It was like the marriage equality act, basically, before it passed on a larger scale. Were you already? You know, you weren't, right? Would you have
2: been already? <laughs> Not quite. you were uh, know, that, that first like <laughs> the wave of San Francisco marriage that was just and then the uh-huh. disappearance. No, we weren't quite there yet. No, we had a different. Evolution. We've had quite an evolution. My husband is from Guatemala. And when we met, he barely spoke English and he was undocumented. So we've had a whole evolution of first getting political asylum for him, which we did, and then becoming domestic partners. So we missed that first wave. But we were first domestic partners before there was marriage and then Mm -hmm. gay marriage. So It's evolved. And it's, it's been interesting. I mean, and really amazing. I mean, there's another thing that time will do for you. I mean, given what life was like for me at certain points to me, things like gay marriage and prep feel like two miracles. Like I never, ever, ever would have imagined that those two things could be possible at certain points in my life, you know? Yep.
1: So just for our listeners who don't know, can you tell us what prep is?
2: Oh, sure. So, I mean, going back in history a little bit, because I, I realize, I mean, I work with teenagers and some of them don't don't even know what AIDS is when I mention them. Well, here's the bottle. There's the <laughs> bottle. to the podcast, but it's funny. So, I mean, originally there was, people died very quickly of AIDS and there was no cure for it. And the treatments were as toxic as the disease. And so it was all very... Awful, but drugs have evolved both if someone is HIV positive, that they really basically can manage it with drugs. And for people who are not HIV positive, it's kind of like analogous to a birth control pill in a way, I guess. You can take PrEP and it protects you from being infected with HIV. So yes, miracle. Yeah. It's a miracle.
0: Even as a millennial, I'm in that same like mindset as you. So Again, going across the generations, just thinking about what we consider of, I never thought, a PrEP or gay marriage. It just, it's, it just, it just boggles my mind still sometimes.
2: Yeah, and I remind myself of that sometimes when like, there's things about our field that are the, my, the things I don't like. <laughs> like, if there can be gay marriage and PrEP... There actually could be, like, smaller caseloads and less paperwork.
1: You know I mean? <laughs> right? <laughs> Change can happen. Progress.
0: You said it, Jim. <laughs> you said it right here yeah,
1: on, on yeah.
0: SLP. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> I
2: agree uh, with you know, that. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking about the marriage, it's been interesting also how that's evolved. So, I mean, you know that my, my parents weren't comfortable with that. We... Visited them and they definitely softened in their 80s around that. But they would not have been comfortable coming to our wedding. You know, we, we had a, a small city hall wedding, local. I mean, one friend traveled from Michigan, whose daughter lives out here. One nephew came down from Portland, who's on the West Coast. But we didn't even in, invite people beyond just having a local party, which I think suited both of our personalities anyway. But what was really curious is the most supportive parent was Jorge's mother. And his whole family lives in, you know, there's 12 of them in one room in rural Guatemala. And his parents' first language isn't Spanish, it's Quiche. Hmm. And there's no gay rights in Guatemala. And there's really, there's not access to like... Education about queer culture and all that is just who she is as a person. She accepted it, and we had a FaceTime talk, like mother-in-law, son-in-law FaceTime talk, where she gave me advice about marriage and, and partnership, and it was very sweet. And it kind of it can break some of the stereotypes of what you might right. expect, right? Yeah. Because it was sweet. And you know, thinking about marriage, Natalie, aren't you about to get married?
1: I am about to get married. Ah, Yes.
2: Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So Andrea and I are getting married in July. It's the second marriage for both of us. My first marriage was before it was legal in the United States. And so my ex-wife and I went to Canada and got married in Canada because we wanted it to be legal somewhere. But uh, yeah, I'm very excited and it feels different and exciting you know this time around it's just like it feels so natural and even in this rural area that i'm living in now it's like i talk to people about how i'm getting married and people seem just as excited about it as they would for a straight couple and so i'm just very excited i adore andrea she is an amazing human being and i just can't wait to get married to her call her my wife
0: stop my eyes (laughs) (laughs) i can see the reflection i was like i'm tearing up right now Uh, emotional wreck all the time over here
2: Um, uh, that's so great and is it the kind of wedding a lot of family members feel comfortable traveling to or yes under
1: normal circumstances i i think people would be um Uh you know it's in july so we're sort of crossing our fingers and hoping that people can come but yeah, I mean, my, my family is very supportive. Even family members that I would call conservative are very supportive. And I feel very loved in my family, which is wonderful.
0: So awesome. Yeah. Um, Jim, so we kind of like segued right into a perfect way to kind of wrap up your proud professional episode because you talked about lowercase loads and paperwork, <laughs> and one of the things we like to know, you know, aside from what it means to be a proud professional, but is also like, what are your hopes for our field or even just professionalism as a whole? I mean, that's a larger question,
2: but oh god, I it very- to, to be a speech
0: language pathologist,
2: what would you? What are your hopes for future generations or in general? I have a lot of hopes I mean I can I back up a little bit yeah, to yeah. what have been my experience specific to being gay oh, in the field? yeah because we have totally gone there then we can go to hope um, <laughs> 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 what's because you know I mean I've certainly heard this from from you and from other people I mean there people have faced challenges within this field being gay and Yeah, there have been several of those. Honestly, one of the first things that happened as soon as I got a job in the public schools, luckily it was just a scare and not a big deal. But, you know, there's that whole stereotype of like the gay male child predator thing. And this was a time when they were taking a lot of kids out of special day classes and putting them into the regular education who had a very different sense of boundaries, socially appropriate boundaries. There were lots lots of kids masturbating in the regular ed classrooms, which is a bit weird for the other kids. But one of their parents asked their son, who had a pretty severe stuff going on, who taught you how to do this? And he said me and his teacher and his para and named like a whole bunch of people at the school and the police came to investigate us. And luckily, the principal had gotten got rid of the police by the time I heard was told about it, but I was doing like one-on-one pull-out therapy with this kid. I mean, it's scary. There's still to this day, I mean, cause I still see a lot of people one-on-one, but I always kind of wish there was another adult around. Like I would feel a little safer. So, Same. but definitely there were schools there were families. Yeah, you get that. So that still, it feels like it's something from like the 1930s, but it's still lingering. You know, there've been families that didn't want me to work with their kids cause I was gay. I've had teacher advocates help you know, because they were kids with like IEPs, but they just didn't come because their parents didn't want gays working with their kids. And I did have teachers help to turn that around. So I had that stuff in the school and, and the clinic I work in now. Similar stuff. I mean, I remember... There have been various incidences of that where I work now, but the one that's coming to mind, because you said the same word, Hector, that I remember you in a different podcast mentioning kids telling you that you were disgusting. And I've had kids say that exact same thing to me. I remember I had these, there were two fifth grade twin girls and they totally started going off on me about how I'm disgusting and I shouldn't be allowed to be married and I shouldn't be allowed to have kids and blah, 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 blah. And in this case, of course, our parents are sitting in the waiting room like, where did they get the idea you know so sometimes that's been hard but i've noticed kind of like with my parents if you're able to keep your heart open and maintain a connection with people you help them overcome their homophobia with time sometimes and that did happen with those two i mean they 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 definitely got used to it and became okay with it it was funny cuz i heard i just heard from one of them one of them found me on Instagram about four months ago. I was like, remember me? I'm in high school now. But I'm like, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that helped. I also had um, the, the ex-director didn't want me to be out at work. And so she would, she felt it was okay for the straight women to talk about their husbands, but not me. And her, she thought I should say if they asked that my, it was my private life and it was none of their business, but I was able to just get her to back down. And I said, no. And, and, and she changed, but yeah, I, I I've had all those experiences. And, and I guess one of the things that strikes me is I've had all of those experiences as a white cisgendered gay man in San Francisco. San Francisco is the only city I've ever worked in. All of that happened in San Francisco, which is a fairly
1: right. But that, but that was surprising this, to me. I was th- thinking to myself, "This is you know, you live in San Francisco, which is known for being a gay friendly yeah. city." It just it blew my mind a little to hear that you you've had those experiences.
2: No, it's been a lot. And, you know, I, I, so it makes me think, my God, you know, what if, what, what might it be like for a non-binary trans people of color in, in more conservative areas where they don't even feel they can safe to say it? You know, I always try to put that in the wider context, um, Because I think part of being the part of the queer community is having to is is having is is advocating for trans rights. Mm -hmm. too. I mean, there's so much more prejudice against trans people. And, you know, and I'm white. I mean, like, I'm sure, Hector, you have the whole thing where you're not white. So you have like the racism and the homophobia. And Natalie, you have the misogyny and the homophobia. And I really pretty much just have the homophobia. But even there's been quite a bit with that. So (laughs) it's striking. So, yeah, just to say, yeah, that happens even here, um, even now. And there's been more, but I think that's enough to give you the idea. But there's definitely been even more experiences than that. But I do have a lot of hopes for our field. I well, I, I mean, I have a lot of hopes for our field that don't have to do with they include queer stuff, but they don't have to do with queer stuff all 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 Mm -hmm. of them um i will admit that i'm a very very idealistic person so that's easy to become disappointed because then the world isn't what i want it to be i mean in terms of hopes for our field from a queer angle it's certainly to include queer kids book and queer history and queer friendly materials and openly queer People on staff and, you know, supporting queer kids and teens as they come up as, as kind of a part of a bigger movement towards a field that embraces social justice work. I guess, I mean, honestly, one thing I would like to see in our field is a movement away from the medical model being the central model to what I would think of as like a holistic model that in, also in, within that is a social justice model. And it may be because we're all school, you know, we're all educators. You probably need the medical model more in the hospital. But I think sometimes that's the right lens to look at things through. And I think a lot of times it isn't. Um, So I think that we need a social justice lens. I think we could learn a lot from the abolitionist movement in in education. I mean, if we're going to shout out to another book, we're all shouting out to books, um, Uh, We Want to Do More Than Survive by Bettina Love is a book I would shout out to. And that's a major book. You know, she's a black lesbian and it's a major book in terms of social justice and fighting racism within education, classism and all kinds of things. So I would like to see our our field really have an intersectional social justice lens. I I mean, thinking about equity, I, I mean, you've got the issues of like you don't want people from marginalized communities over represented and special it, and you don't want them denied services because people think it's just bilingual. But I also think, you know, what if we could just get rid of the whole thing of we only help you if you qualify, why can't we just help everybody that needs help? Why do you need a label? Why do you have to qualify? I mean, I, I'm very idealistic. I could see changes <laughs> yeah. that way. Another change I think is about, clinician self-care, you could call it. I would say that's part of, um, I think a lot of people get attracted to these kind of fields that give a lot of their energy away, but sometimes give so much away that they're depleted so that we really look into taking care of ourselves while we're taking care of other people. Along with that, I think that this field involves a lot of coaching, but you learn to coach by the seat of your pants because you're not really trained on that, that we specifically train it and train. I get trained on it and learn better how to do it. I have never liked assessments, so I don't like the way assessment reports are written. I'd like to see family friendly assessments. I'd like to see assessment reports without any technological jargon that were written for families to understand, to empower the families and to empower the person. I'd like to see every single person that we work with also have what you could call, a, look at it through a strength-based lens, have a strength goal that we're not just looking at what are their challenges to remediate, but what is what are their unique strengths as people and highlighting them and celebrating them. So I can kind of go on and on because there's a lot of... <laughs> visions for change, but I'm, What well, you know, hey, I mean, there didn't used to be gay marriage. There didn't used to be prep in my life. There didn't used to be cell phones or internet. So who yeah. knows what's possible, well, right? Yeah, but, I mean, um,
1: I, I'm hopeful, you know, that, that through conversations about disability, that we can get to a place where some of those things can be a reality. I've seen a lot lately about, especially like coming from autistic people, who are self-advocating and saying, this is, you know, this is how we feel about it. We're different, but we don't have a deficit. It's a difference. And, right. it, you know, seeing, seeing that gives me hope that will hopefully come into the psyches of people in our field to see it as not needing a diagnosis. We're just going to help you, you know, where you are and what you say you need. I, I, have, I can really relate to some of your hopes, Jim. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And I think there's a parallel between the disability rights movement now and the, queer, the history of the queer rights yeah. movement, mm-hmm. because this was seen as a sin, a mental illness and a crime. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I, I, when I've read queer history, people felt that they were all alone with it and that they had to change themselves to fit society. And a lot of the disability rights movement is about you no know, society needs to change itself to embrace us. And I, I, you know, I think we could be part of that change. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hopeful about the field. I've gotten disillusioned with it at times, honestly, but I am hopeful about it. I think it's a valuable field.
0: I think it's one that has to change. In order to talk to talk, it needs to walk the walk with what the current mm-hmm. generation, um, environment, whatever is yeah. being set out now, and with movements that are happening towards more inclusivity and, marginalized groups being able to, you know, define for themselves, you know, who are what they are, our field needs to change in order to to reflect mm-hmm. that. Otherwise, then we're just kind of like, we're not really living by our own code of ethics and yeah. hoping there's accountability with that as time moves on as
2: well. I feel hopeful and young people in this field that I've met make me hopeful. Agreed. I have just felt really good about the younger people I've met, you know, and I guess as an older person, I don't like the word expert. Um, I'm not interested in that. I don't feel like I'm the one with the answers. What I would really love to do is collaborate with younger people and like offer my years of experience and my perspective, but not like I'm above you with the right answer, you know? So I actually, I feel have a lot of hope partly because of the younger people coming into the field and there are movements. I see it in some of the graduate schools where they're like softening some of their requirements so that they're more, it's more possible for people of different like linguistic right. and racial backgrounds right. to get through the hoops to get in. I'd like to see that happen. And, and there's indications that it's happening. You know? Right. Get rid of the GRE. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. Huge movement know. right now. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh I'm right behind yeah. Well, the abolitionist movement in education is about getting rid of standardized testing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yeah I get it
1: so Jim one more question that we have for you is sure. what does being a proud professional
2: mean to you sure well being a proud professional in this case I'm not saying not proud in the kind of ego pride sense, but the self-esteem pride sense, the positive pride, it has to do with just fully embracing myself as a gay, queer, Kinsey 5 person in my life and in my profession. Part of that, I think, involves self-compassion and self-care. And part of that has to do with Beyond tolerance and beyond acceptance is celebration. And that's something I really learned by moving to San Francisco 30 years ago was the first place i would ever been in a community where queerness was celebrated. And and I think we see this now with like the Black Joy movement that people need to be celebrated. So part of being a proud professional for me or proud person is celebrating who we are. On, On an individual level, I would definitely say that. I also think it's got a community dimension and that has it has to do with advocating for other people, advocating for younger people coming up, advocating for people in more difficult circumstances. You know, maybe, you know, gay men who don't live in San Francisco, certainly like non-binary and trans people who have more prejudice against them. It's there's a community element to it. And for me, it also is being a memory keeper for the histories. It means all those things. I mean, within that, I would I said I'm gay, queer, Kinsey six, so on, uh, Kinsey five. Sorry, not six. I'll unpack that a little. Um, gay, I think, is pretty self explanatory. But I, even with that, I would say I think there's two two elements to gay for me. I'm, I'm wondering how that is for the two of you. Uh, there's the element of just kind of like primal attraction, like monkey see banana, monkey want banana, like feel attracted to several thousand people every year. And then there's what, what the author Lee Win calls homo love you all. And it's, it's a love attraction. And it's more that I know that my primary partner needs to be male. So gay means both of those things. Queer would embrace that. I would also say part of being queer for me is that I'm also attracted to trans men. And I wouldn't assume that all gay men are attracted to trans men and queer is a community term that you're part of a larger community of gender, sex, nonconformity and stand beside people who are facing more discrimination. So kind of umbrella slash community activism. I said Kinsey five, and I know that's going to be the rarest thing that people have said. So the Kinsey scale is from 1948 and I guess why, the why I invoke it is because I think in some ways we've got a more advanced discussion about gender, non, non binary gender right now than we do sexuality. I mean, because we kind of have gay, straight, bi is the main way that people are going to do that. So that would be a Kinsey one, a Kinsey six, or a Kinsey 3.5 if you were a pure bisexual. Um, I mean. I was going to update it, I would turn the Kinsey scale into a spectrum and make it blended colors instead of numbers. But I said Kinsey's five. And part of that is I would say I'm mainly gay, but I also see there is a certain kind of erotic energy that can happen between me and women. And it's not the same as the primal impulse. In fact, I can see, I can see any woman, woman I don't know is beautiful, but for that to arise between me and a woman, there's like, it comes through a heart connection. And if there's a heart connection, it may not be about like reproductive kind of sexuality, but there is an eroticism. I feel like identity is more of a dynamic narrative than a label. So that's kind of why I invoke invoke the old Kinsey scale into modern times. Do, do those definitions of self make sense to the two of you? Or how do you relate to that?
0: I mean, for me, huh. yeah. Um... But I, I'm mm-hmm. lucky in that one, uh, during my time of changing my major, <laughs> psychology was one of them. <laughs> and I took a psychology of <laughs> sexuality course. And so we did a full deep dive into Kinsey Skill. And so, mm-hmm. totally get that. It, I, it's definitely a spectrum, I would say, more so than anything. And then I, again, with the identities and labels and all that stuff, uh, it's just so interesting how everybody's just so different, you know? Uh, <laughs> and then, so like, I love how you can like truly. Find yourself within that, and it helps to like give some, st- in some way, it gives comfort. I feel like, even for me, like, I don't think i mean rarely is anybody ever a true one or a true six you know and so but i'm definitely Mm -hmm. on that closer end to like Mm 5.999 you know (laughs) (laughs) but but that's when it comes to sexuality as far as like a heart connection Mm -hmm. you know definitely i feel you know it's never been romantic or even erotic but you know like just Mm -hmm. connection
2: um yeah. Um Yeah, I get I don't know. I also say that I'm I'm bi-social and bi-cuddle. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that, right? <laughs> I bi-cuddle for sure.
0: Yeah. While cuddling um, is
1: welcome. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um what about you, Nat?
1: Um actually, I don't really identify much with the Kinsey scale. It doesn't really speak to me. I mean, if, if I had to like put my, I, I think I'm with with both of you where I'm mostly on that, you know, five to six range and having that emotional connection with people. But what I really latched on to, to what you said, Jim, was about like celebration and moving beyond the sadness to a place of celebration and joy in the differences that we have. And making that a beautiful thing because I really do believe that it's a beautiful thing that we're all so different and we can, we can, you know, we can celebrate that. And that's what I latched on to, to what you said. It's a hope for me too, that that we can celebrate each other's differences and, and see the value in it.
0: Yeah. 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 I love that as well, Nad. Like there was that piece where, and I had to remember because Jimmy talked about how coaching is so emphasized in our field that more so than others, we have, if not the obligation, but the opportunity to advocate for other younger generations, but also other groups, specifically if we're going to talk about the LGBTQ plus community, but, you know, trans women of color, right? So we have this opportunity and obligation to advocate. And as professionals, it's so tricky. You know, because I'm never going to put myself like I would say uh, for speech specifically, we have a little bit more flexibility to speak out, you know, because, you know, but like I, I could see how scary that would be in the private sector to go out on a limb because you don't have protections or you. Don't, it's not written in your code of ethics. You know, like there isn't that governing body to sort of like lean on a little bit you have this Mm -hmm. like you fall in line or you're out i have to remember that we have that and 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 celebrate that we have that privilege to be able to do that in our field so readily like Mm -hmm. i know ashley is gonna say something you know like even though it may be a little bit late (laughs) i still know they're gonna say something Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) but (laughs) i can't say that for other fields you know and so truly you know celebrating that we have that is, is something that I, I want to hold on to as well.
2: Well, one, one final thought about the Kinseys. Just it's a, it's a quirky memory, but <laughs> um, there's a drag appella group called the Kinsey six. Mm-hmm. <gasps> oh yeah. And one of my, First professors at San Francisco State was one of the original members of the Kinsey Six. <laughs> my, my, oral, my oral rehabilitation teacher was Trampolina in the Kinsey Six.
1: Yes.
2: yes. Uh, name embodied, like there's so much going in my head
1: right now, <laughs> like this
0: envision of
1: this I mean, trampoline. Like, just this sounds so magical to me as a singer. And there's a queer person. It's like, I want to see a drag, a cappella group. A drag cappella group. Right. That sounds like magic.
0: <laughs> and this is how you know I work with kids was I envisioned trampolina to be like a ballerina with a instead of a tutu, but a trampoline and not even keying into the tramp part of that name. Like that was not in my mind. I was like, trampoline ballerina. Yes. <laughs> You're like
1: a trampoline?
0: And wholesome.
1: <laughs> so, you know what, Hector, I totally didn't go to the tramp part either. I immediately went to trampoline. Yeah. And uh, thought, oh, like bouncy, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: awesome. I'm so happy. All righty. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for yeah. today. So it
2: was perfect. For- It was perfect to me.
0: It was perfect. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you, either on social media or wherever else?
2: (laughs) Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm on everything. So I, I think a great place if you're interested in that Facebook group, Speech Paths for Compassion and Social Justice, you can find me, not only just me, but find the group. And then I'm Jim Cartwright on Facebook. I think I'm Cartwright Jim on Twitter and Instagram. I'm certainly Jim Cartwright on LinkedIn because that's the most professional way to be on LinkedIn, (laughs) but I'm on all that. so you know, and I'm very open and enthusiastic about communicating with people and dialoguing with people. So even if you just want to reach out to say hi, I would love it. I love networking. I've met so many people from all over the country during COVID. It's been surreal, and that's part of what's given me hope in this field. I've met a lot of really cool speech paths all over the United States, actually, and beyond the United States, just in the past year. So, so reach out to me. Just say hi,
1: young SLPs. Reach out to Jim; he wants to mentor you. Right, that's true, that's true.
2: I'll <laughs> that. Shout I do. out, yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Queer SLP.
0: Want to be featured on our Instagram page or be on the show? Check us out at thequeerslp.com for more information.
1: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Queer SLP.
0: If you enjoyed listening, be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Bye! Bye.